This program is made possible by the support of the members of the show. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bugle, The Young Turks, On the Media, The BBC News Quiz, Counterspin, The Onion Radio News, MarkFiore.com, Real Time with Bill Maher, The Colbert Report, and The Rachel Maddow Show with an excellent bonus video for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. Oil slick news now. And Andy, there are precious few reasons to be proud to be British anymore. You know, we're so often irrelevant on the world stage. So you can imagine how excited I was when I heard that the oil slick that's threatening to destroy unprecedented amounts of wildlife on and off the Gulf Coast is our fault, Andy. (laughs) BP, British Petroleum. No one says we're not relevant anymore, Andy. No one puts Britain in the corner. Of course, uh, they've initially, initially denied responsibility for it, claiming that they didn't put the oil there, uh, and they also don't explicitly advocate uh, compressing organic matter to form fossil fuels over several billion years. Uh, also, that they were just dicking around with a pipeline whilst going for a swim, uh, that the sea had looked pretty big, so they're surprised the oil didn't disperse in an orderly fashion, also that it was supposed to be flowing the other way at the time the sea. Also, they say that if the birds choose to bathe in the oil, that's their prerogative, and we shouldn't mess with nature. So, uh, I guess, you know, they've got a few get-outs. Uh, also, Coincidentally, uh, in just a couple of days before the uh, incident, they announced eye-meltingly massive profits figures uh, that had, uh, their profits had doubled um, for the quarter uh, due to a combination of factors, including rising oil prices, rampant profiteering, and an unquenchable desire to absolutely fleece motorists at the petrol pump, <laughs> and evidently also not investing quite enough in ensuring their oil platforms don't explode. Um, so maybe they should have put a bit more of their £1.2 billion a month that uh, they've been getting uh, of profits. Let's put that in context. That is enough money to be able to fund Britain's bit of the Afghanistan war for three months or enough money to rent John Oliver for an, an entire year on his uh, Smurf voiceover rate. Uh, also enough to buy you £1.2 billion coins every month, £1.2 billion, uh, to melt them down and make a giant statue of Rudolf Giuliani saying, please give me more money for my 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, BP is a company of contradictions, Andy. Its slogan is Beyond Petroleum, and they have a reassuringly green, flowery logo, and, of course, all their TV commercials seem to feature nothing but dolphins and windmills. <laughs> Yet, £72.3 of their £73 billion in <laughs> revenue last year came from the exploration, production, refining and marketing of oil and natural gas. So only $700 million came from solar and wind energy. So, uh, not that far beyond petroleum there, Andy. In fact, mainly petroleum might be a fairer slogan for them, or almost entirely petroleum, to be mathematically accurate. <laughs> well, I think this, this might be why this has happened, John, because the estimated clean-up cost uh, is around £5 billion pounds for this, mm-hmm. uh, this incident. Uh, and so BP, Obama said BP are going to have to pay, so they're going to have to pay £5 billion, pounds, and they can then claim that they have put £5 billion pounds into saving the environment. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. That's about eight years' worth of this their current expenditure. This is how it works. The truth is, we won't learn anything from this, as learning from it makes no economic sense. We learn <laughs> nothing from the Exxon Valdez disaster because there was no financial incentive to. BP routinely opt to pay hundreds of millions in fines rather than spend billions on infrastructure reform. And now BP have offered settlements to coastal residents of the Gulf Coast 
uh, of no more than $5,000 as long as they give up their right to sue. <laughs> that is adding insult to terminal livelihood injury. <laughs> the most depressing thing is that this technique routinely works. In Alaska, after two decades of legal wrangling, Exxon eventually got exactly what it wanted. The Supreme Court reduced their punitive damages from $2.5 billion to just $500 million. In a good year, just a single week's profit for them. And if you're wondering what that sound is there, Buglers, that is the sound of my balls attempting to crawl out through my mouth. That's how angry that makes me. <laughs> well, that's your next film part, John. <laughs> but you do slightly get the feeling that they might as well have just gone to the shoreline, drunk a couple of barrels of oil and pissed all over the birds that are currently, <laughs> currently dying there, just for a laugh. You'd think that uh, an unnatural disaster like this one would unify everyone, at least, in their response, but that would really be to underestimate, Andy, just how talented the great American people are at dividing one another. <laughs> Texas Governor Rick Perry speculated that the spill may just have been God's will, saying, from time to time, there are going to be things that occur that are acts of God that cannot be prevented. <laughs> Basically what he's saying is, God hates seagulls. He hates them. <laughs> and he hates seals and turtles too. He thinks they're an embarrassing design mistake that he's attempting to correct. And Rush Limbaugh engaged in some signature whack jobbery, alleging that it may have been all an environmental conspiracy, this, saying, <laughs> now lest we forget, ladies and gentlemen, the carbon tax bill, cap and trade, that was scheduled to be announced on Earth Day, I remember that, and then it was postponed for a couple of days later after Earth Day, and then, of course, immigration has now moved in front of it, but this bill, the cap-and-trade bill, was strongly criticised by hardcore environmentalist wackos because it supposedly allowed more offshore drilling and nuclear plants, <laughs> nuclear plant investments. So, since they're sending SWAT teams down there, folks, since they're sending SWAT teams to inspect the other rigs, what better way to head off more oil-drilling nuclear plants than by blowing up a rig? I'm just noting the timing here. <laughs> what? you, Limbaugh! I mean, I know you can safely say that any moment of the day and it'd be entirely appropriate, but f*** you! He, he then added later, the ocean will take care of this on its own if it was left alone and left out there. It's natural. It's as natural as the ocean water is. <laughs> yeah, it's just not natural, is it, for it to be drilled out of the ground and then <laughs> emptied into the water, Andy? That isn't part of nature's delicate ecosystem. What? I don't know, John. Have you asked nature? <laughs> I yeah. suppose I haven't, Andy. Yeah. I mean, I, went, I asked nature. I suppose I, I haven't. I went to London Zoo just yesterday and I asked oh, yeah. the animals what they thought yeah. of that and, uh, well, their silence spoke more than a thousand <laughs> words ever could. <laughs> Now, we, although this is just the kind of verbal fertiliser you'd expect from that flabby f***wit, uh, <laughs> Dana Perino, the ex-White House press secretary, echoed his bullshit, saying, I'm not trying to introduce a conspiracy theory, but was this deliberate? You have to wonder if there was sabotage involved. <laughs> well, you can wonder that, Dana. Then you can instantly correct yourself and say, Whoa, how did that craziness get into my skull? I'd better not say that out loud or I'll destroy what's left of my scant credibility.
We have a legendary backpedal from the Republicans. Yeah, drill baby drill. Who said that? One <laughs> me. No, drill baby drill. Never heard of it. Here comes Senator John Kyle. That that was not a Senate Republican phrase. Notice what he said in that quote. That was not a Senate Republican phrase. In other words, others might have said it. Sarah Palin, Michael Steele said, "I didn't say it. I didn't say it." Uh, here comes uh, Senator Pat Roberts. Uh, quote, I don't know about the slogan. The slogan was, uh, what, two, three years ago. And basically, we had a lot of opposition to it anyway. Oh, really? I don't remember you. Really? Anybody remember the Republicans' opposition to Drill Baby Drill? I remember the chanting. I don't remember the opposition. So here we go. Backpedal, 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 backpedal. And, of course, blame it on other people, you know. Wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me. So who was it? Uh, here's Kyle. He says, I think there was a candidate that used that. You remember which candidate that was, John? Oh, right, yeah, yeah maybe Sarah Palin. But they, oh, right, she ran for vice president uh, as under your ticket for Republicans. Huh. And then she, he said, I think our phrase was drill here, drill now. <laughs> what the hell is the distinction? So you're going to, no, no, we're not drill, baby, we're drill here, drill now. Should we drill in the Gulf of Mexico now? Should we do that? Well, as we told you yesterday, yeah, they're saying it's time to double down. Yeah, more drilling. That's what John Boehner says, and, uh, and including Democrat Mary Landrieu, who's also uh, bought by these oil corporations. She says, yeah, yeah, more drilling. Yeah, absolutely. Time to hit the oil slick uh, over there before it hits us over here. So drill here, drill now. That, that's our new slogan, except we'll backpedal away from that tomorrow. Okay, so that's uh, point number one. Point number two, we go to Joe Lieberman, another corporatist, uh, claims that he's an independent Democrat. The worst of the worst. Of course, if Joe Lieberman is on one particular side of an issue, you can nearly guarantee that that side is wrong. Uh, and of course, which side does Joe Lieberman go on? Uh, drill here, drill now. Uh, and he says, no, no, no. We need, uh, we can't get scared by the actual consequences of oil drilling uh, offshore. We need to do more offshore oil drilling. And he's as to, hey, what happened in this accident? He says, quote, accidents happen. Yeah. Shit happens. As long as I keep making money, I don't care what happened. Oh, you lost your uh, livelihood in Louisiana and, and, and Mississippi and all these places where you're doing fishing or you're doing tourism in Florida? Nah, shit happens. Hey, where's my paycheck, BP? Let's go. Halliburton, come on, come on. I already covered for your ass. And he's putting pressure on Obama to do more oil drilling. This episode is being sponsored by Audible. They're the world's largest resource for downloadable audio content like books, periodicals, premium podcasts, and more. For a limited time until June 30th, Audible is offering listeners of this show a free audiobook download of your choice. It's a pretty good deal. Simply visit audiblepodcast.com slash best. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best. So, how do you describe the scale of an ongoing disaster? If you were reporting this week on the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the first thing you would have to do is convey the scope of the event. And it's been a struggle because there are so many things to measure, starting with, but not limited to, size. Here's an image of the spill taken from space. Gushing 42,000 gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico every day, creating a slick about the size of Rhode Island. Yeah. This slick is the size of Delaware. 
square. There's no other way to put it. A growing blob of oil, now the size of Jamaica, menaces five coastal states. Jackie Savitz, a senior scientist with Oceana, an international ocean conservation association, says that describing the scale of the leak in geographical terms, or how it looks from outer space, gives the public an incomplete understanding of the spill's true dimension. It may paint a picture of an area on the surface of the ocean that's the size of Delaware to the exclusion of all that area down below the surface where lots of fish and other marine animals live who are also being exposed to the contamination. It might be more telling to think of it in terms of volume, like how many Olympic-sized pools is that or how many stadiums would that be or what lake might that be equivalent to? Does the fact that we can see it from space actually convey anything meaningful? Most people don't really have a sense of how far away space is, and even when you say it, I'm not really sure how far away you're talking about. Is it a satellite that's circling the Earth, or are you seeing it from the moon, right? There's a, there's a lot of space out there. But one bit of media misdirection you think that's taking place is a focus on whether or not the oil spill will hit the coast. Well, and I think the media means well in this case, but what it does is I think it leads people to think, okay, well, it's not a problem until it hits the coast. The truth is that there's a broad diversity of marine life that live in the area right where the spill is that have been exposed to toxic contaminants now for almost two weeks. Endangered species like sea turtles, marine mammals like bottlenose dolphins. So if we only think about what's going to happen when it hits the coast, we really haven't characterized the devastation that's happening in our ocean right now as we speak and continuing to happen. And even preventing it from hitting the coast requires taking some risk with the environment, right? I mean, in Mm -hmm. order to make that slick small enough so that you couldn't see it from space, you'd have to drop toxic chemicals on it to get it off the surface. Exactly. The use of chemicals that they call dispersants, they're breaking up the oil so that it dissolves into the water, so maybe it doesn't wash up on the coast. It's not going to create those ugly pictures of birds and globs of oil on the beach as often, but it doesn't mean that we've solved the problem or the problem's really gone away. It's still there. Really, whether it's a good idea or not depends on whether you're a seabird or a fish. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Brooke. Jackie Savitz is a senior scientist with the conservation organization Oceana. Of course, there's yet another dimension of the spill to consider, the political one. What's the scale of that? How much of the blame for it falls at the feet of government? For commentators on the political right, Katrina is the ideal metric to apply to the government's response to the spill. Most people would assume that the federal government didn't get involved because they thought BP was going to take care of it. But it's the mm-hmm. same thing with Katrina. Bush said exactly. he didn't get involved because he's waiting for Louisiana to call him in. That's a perfect analogy. Look, this is unconscionable that they had a plan in place. They would burn off the oil in an instant like this. The administration didn't do it. Criticism coming from the Sierra Club that Obama's response to the oil spill was worse than Katrina. That damn oil slick. Obama's Katrina. Hurricane reporter Mark Schlefstein covered Katrina for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. Seen from the Louisiana perspective, he says, there's not much of a comparison. This is Katrina light at best. What happened during Katrina was that 
the disaster had known consequences. In fact, Bush was shown a video presentation by the director of the National Hurricane Center that showed that the entire city of New Orleans would be flooded if the thing went in as a Category 5. But despite that information in advance of Hurricane Katrina, there were not significant efforts made to assure that people would be able to be rescued immediately. The difference here is that this is a much slower kind of a disaster event, and the result of that was that there actually was time to deal with things as they moved along. I really don't understand how people could say the administration did not immediately respond to this incident. I still don't see that there's a real way of comparing the two. They're just not the same. The only comparison that you see is that in both cases, there was a failure by authorities to anticipate and prepare for a potential disaster. Right. And the problem here is that they had the lesson learned from Katrina. For instance, the Army Corps of Engineers is building its risk lessons from Katrina into everything that it now does as an agency. It was expected that those same risk lessons would be delivered to other agencies of the federal government. Obviously, in this case, they were not delivered to the Minerals Management Service. They did not really take seriously the potential for a catastrophic event occurring that far offshore. So if I could ask you to function as a media critic here for a moment rather than as a reporter, what do you think the motive is then behind pundits and news organizations using phrases like Obama's Katrina? Well, (laughs) it's easy to say that. I think it's very clear that saying Obama's Katrina is certainly a marketing tool that works very well. I just don't think it works in this particular instance. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. Mark Schlefstein is a reporter for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. And finally, reporters have to summon up language to convey the environmental impact. But how do you describe the scope of something that is still unknown? Some reporters opt for prose that matches the color of the spill. Purple. Meanwhile, Gulf communities are racing for an economic and environmental catastrophe. The devastation is already occurring. I expect this will be the biggest oil spill in the world by far. The leak takes months to plug. As some have predicted, this could be the worst environmental disaster in our nation's history. And given the rarity of such enormous spills, reporters reach back to a past calamity as a reference and a reminder of an accident that burned the image of rainbow-slicked shorelines and slimed seabirds into America's consciousness, the Exxon Valdez disaster of 1989. It could be worse than the Valdez 20 years ago unless they can figure out how to stop this leakage. It threatens to eclipse the devastation caused by the Exxon Valdez. This BP spill, uh, if it keeps up at the current rate in 50 days, it will be worse than the Exxon Valdez. Charles Woolforth covered the Exxon Valdez spill in 1989. He says that both the purple prose and the Valdez comparisons are too much too soon. I think that the media kind of got a little ahead of itself. I saw stories that were saying it would be worse than the Exxon Valdez and calling it a catastrophe pretty early on. And the fact is, we really don't know how bad it is yet. And One really dramatic difference between this spill and the Exxon Valdez is that in the Exxon Valdez, you had over 11 million gallons dumped in six hours just a few miles from shore. In this case, you have something around 200,000 gallons a day being dumped 50 miles away from shore. So 
in the Exxon Valdez, you had an enormous amount of oil that was, within three days, completely coasting a inland sea, essentially. And here you have oil that's pretty far offshore and it gets significantly degraded before it gets to shore. And it doesn't sound like, at least as we're talking today, we know it's bad, but it's just nowhere near on the scale of Exxon Valdez yet. Woolforth says that reporters covering Valdez back in 89 did a pretty good job, given the obstacles posed by so unusual a story in so inaccessible a place. So they were kind of at a loss in how to get out there, how to see it, how to evaluate what they're looking at. And they were covering a story that most of them had never covered before, because major oil spills don't happen that often. So there was a certain amount of exaggeration or erroneous coverage. But overall, they got it right. I mean, if you measure it by the impression that the public got, it was a huge environmental disaster, off the charts, really. And people got that word, and they understood it, and they appreciated, at least briefly, the fact that once you have an oil spill this size, that there's really not that much you can do about it, and that the devastation is horrendous. In terms of impact, the media did its job, in your view. And in this case, do you think that the headline-grabbing nature of this coverage is doing the same job? Well, one of the fears I have about the coverage is that if we dodge the bullet and if they are able to shut off the oil and the disaster isn't nearly as bad as Exxon Valdez, then it's kind of a cry-wolf situation. It's, oh, look at those environmentalists exaggerating everything again. You can't trust them. So there's a real cost to saying it's a catastrophe before it is a catastrophe, even if it has very negative impacts that are very serious. If they're not as bad as you said they were going to be, then people kind of tend to discount them, whereas if they were encountering them without having that expectation, they might take them much more seriously. So I think it's important to be really careful about what has actually happened and what might happen, because it does have a huge political impact on how we're going to deal with the environmental issues in the future. Charles, thank you very much. Sure. Charles Woolforth writes on the environment. His book, The Fate of Nature, comes out in June. The fate of the region in the wake of the spill is unknown. All of us hate unknowns. But with the future as murky as the Gulf of Mexico, any commentator who claims to offer clarity right now is only muddying the waters. dodging the blame. Uh, this is the oil spill. Try and get this right. BP owned the well. 
mm-hmm. a company called Transocean owned the rig, mm-hmm. and I was reading the article, and it got onto the whole question of some dodgy concrete casing that they think might be responsible, and the name of Halliburton popped up. <laughs> it always does, Halliburton. It's like some malicious gargoyle squatting over every evil that befalls the world. <laughs> They're all blaming each other saying that the stopcock was in the wrong place and everything. And um, the latest suggested solution, which is a fantastically corporate solution, is they are going to plug the hole by firing rubbish into it. (laughs) They are. They're going to compact rubbish made from golf balls, bits of human hair. and I just think it's a fantastically typical solution that they're causing all this pollution and the way they're going to stop it is with more pollution. <laughs> and, um, so golf balls, how corporate is that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and human hair, where the hell have they got that from? Yeah, that's the best They're shaving block- their employees. Best, what way they blocking, best way of blocking a pipe is human hair, isn't it? That's, that's, that's tampons fantastic. then, surely. Lots of tampons. Chip fat that's solidified. Rice, congealed, overcooked rice. That will drop it. Terrorists will sneak down there with Mr. Muscle sink unblocker. ways they've tried to solve it. Uh, the enormous prefabricated dome. Didn't work though, did it? No, they've turned it into a music venue. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't work because... They couldn't get Tina Turner out of it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I read about it. It didn't work because some crystals formed on the inside that meant that they couldn't pump the, the stuff out. You think, well, hang on, surely you've got scientists, haven't you? Couldn't they lower Michael Portillo down there just to absorb all the oil? No. <laughs> Michael Portillo would have the reverse effect. (laughs) BP says it's thrown $350 billion at the rescue operation. Money's quite absorbent. You thought that would have done it. (laughs) Can't they mix it with balsamic vinegar and just make a nice dressing? (laughs) Whenever they used to have these environmental disasters, you'd always see footage of people shampooing penguins and things, and I miss those days. (laughs) Once the wildlife is covered in oil, instead of washing it off, take a comb down there, style it. I think the TV journalists are getting a bit frustrated waiting. They've probably started dunking some cormorants in barrels of oil. You know? And if you have your news quiz bingo cards to hand, tick dunking a cormorant now. <laughs> I reckon cormorants dunk themselves in the oil because it's really nice having someone else wash your hair for you. Isn't it? <laughs> it's lovely. It's like, oh, it's like a sort of massage. It isn't pervy. <laughs> This feels so, nice. anyway, where are you migrating this year? <laughs> How do you try and flog a cormorant some products, though, at the end? That'd yeah, be that's good. <laughs> Would you like our post-oil slick balm? <laughs> at a Senate hearing, BP, Halliburton and Transocean have blamed each other for the oil spill that threatens America's Gulf Coast region. There hasn't been this much finger-pointing since the 1989 ET convention. <laughs> BP's latest plan is to ram rubbish, such as golf balls and shredded tyres, into the leak to block the hole. And if that fails, they're going to employ a little Dutch boy. Pick 
waking up Cause I'm humming this song The buses and the people all keep moving along To the shopkeeper I say what's up And I'm thinking about the man who's holding up the cup With a story like the ongoing environmental disaster in the Gulf of Mexico The media provide regular updates along with One hopes some broader context One question much on people's minds right now Is just how often these kinds of accidents happen An especially critical and timely question Given the White House's support for expanding offshore oil drilling Time magazine answered that question in a short item in the May 10th issue with the headline, Offshore Drilling Disasters, Rare but Deadly. And they sure are rare, according to Time. The chart lists just four incidents anywhere in the world, ever. But it doesn't take too much research to turn up a slew of other incidents that raise concerns. The Unical-owned Seacrest drill ship that capsized in 1989, killing 91 people. Phillips Petroleum's Alexander Keeland rig that collapsed in 1980, killing 123, and more. A previous Time story had noted that the Minerals Management Service, which oversees offshore drilling, reported 39 fires or explosions in the first five months of 2009 alone. Though the magazine said the good news is that most of these did not result in death. Clearly, there are different ways to measure such things, but it's hard not to feel that Time's point was to suggest that drilling disasters are really too rare to worry about. guys chanted drill baby drill and we got it on tape and we showed it to you earlier and Sarah Palin Michael Steele all of them they're like yeah offshore drilling that's the way to go now all of a sudden we have a major disaster because of offshore drilling and their favorite guys that give them all the paychecks you know whether it's BP a multinational corporation or Halliburton Transocean etc all the different oil companies that are in the Gulf of Mexico well, the Republicans, those were their boys. So they can't, you know, go against them. So what are they going to do? They've got to make something up. Here comes Rick Perry first, governor of Texas, saying, well, maybe it wasn't really anybody's fault. Maybe it was an act of God. Really? God make them, made the oil rig explode? First of all, that's not cool. I wouldn't blame God like that. <laughs> Second of all, what the hell did God have to do with the cementing operation of Halliburton on that rig? You know why? Of course. It is a corporation. It must protect, must protect corporate America. Uh, and again, it's not even America. It's multinational corporations like BP. Must protect the corporations. I am Republican. He says, no, you can't have a knee-jerk reaction. Well, how big did the disaster have to be before we have any kind of reaction? He says, no, no, no. We have to absolutely keep doing offshore drilling in, in the Gulf of Mexico and all across the country, obviously. But you think he's bad. Wait till you get a load of Boehner and Democrat Senator Mary Landrieu, they say it's time to expand oil drilling offshore. Unrepentant. No, time to double down. 
Uh, you know what? Uh, he's, uh, Boehner says, this tragedy should remind us that Americans need a real comprehensive energy plan, like the Republicans' all-of-the-above strategy. All of the above strategy is let's do it all. Let's do nuclear, let's do offshore oil drilling. So he says this disaster involving offshore oil drilling should remind you that we need to do more offshore oil drilling. How? How would it remind me of that? It would seem to remind me of something else, the exact opposite. But if you think all those guys are about, wait till you get a load of Mary Landrieu. And of course, Mary Landrieu is the biggest, one of the biggest corporatist Democrats in, in the country. And does she take money from the oil companies who do the offshore drilling? Of course! she does. That's exactly what I said when she first came out in support of them. I said, I bet you she takes tremendous amount of money from the oil companies, and now we find out, of course she does, right? So what does she say about the drilling? She says, let us not react with fear, and let us not retreat. Yeah. We should attack the oil spill before it attacks us. We have to attack it over there before they come over here. So we don't retreat. What do we do? Landrew, Boehner, Perry, what should we do? Go more, pour more oil in the middle of the Gulf, be like, oh yeah, we're gonna attack you, you son of a bitch. Here's more oil. I'll spill more on top of it. I don't retreat. Yesterday we played a clip from Fox News. Brett Hume's like, oh, what's so what am I gonna do? Run like a little bunny rabbit? Is that what he's gonna do? If he was a real man, he'd spill more oil in the water and go, ha, you like me now? There's your dead fish and your, your tourist and your fishing. Ha! <laughs> Environment. What are you, a bunny rabbit? What are you going to do in a country that's filled with, you know, one party that is just, it's not that they're stupid, right? It's that they're completely disingenuous. They are one million percent in the back of the corporations, in the back pocket of the corporations. And they have no intention of ever representing you. It's a joke. Everything they do is a ruse to get more money in their pockets. And that's the one, one party, the Republicans. And the other party ain't that better. One foot in the hole, one foot you can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Massive oil spill results in improved wildlife viscosity. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. A castor oil supertanker ran aground today near Nome, Alaska, spilling more than 51 million gallons of oil and greatly improving the viscosity of marine wildlife. The spill coated 500,000 birds, fish, and seals in quality high-grade lubricant that will provide valuable protection and keep important animal parts running smooth. Castor oil Oil officials are pleased with the well-lubed wildlife and plan to coat all other earth mammals in oil. Oil residents for the Onion Radio. The children outside all are laughing Under perfect skies, the shapes and patterns in the season Make me feel alive, I want to shout it from the rooftop Tell the world that I was blind, but now I see it's right in front of me. It's a beautiful world I see.
Uh, Betsy, Fox News and some Republicans have been trying to paint Obama as slow to respond at first to the oil spill and the, and the enormity of it. What did you think of his response? You know, that this is sort of the argument, this is Obama's Katrina. I don't really buy that. I mean, I think that at the beginning, you know, it was a question of was it really going to escalate into some huge spill and conflicting, you know, sort of information was coming out. I don't think the administration can really fault the administration's response. You know, I think that you can fault them for not using this moment to push some kind of an energy agenda. I mean, a lot of People have urged them. You can read, you know, the Times columns every day. Paul Krugman, yeah. you know, saying, "Look, this is this is our moment to really point out that every everything has a cost, and drilling for oil, you know, deep in the Gulf of Mexico has has a huge cost, and we're paying that now. And let's pay that cost. You know, if we're going to do something, let's do something smart now." Uh, with this moment, this sort of teachable moment, which they really have not done anything with. So I, I, I guess I would focus more on, on, on that level of response. I think the on-the-ground you know, response and getting the Coast Guard out there and all the, all the things you do, I think the on-the-ground response has been as, as, as competent as you could hope for at this point. Betsy, and why do they not capitalize on this? I mean, it, it seems like in the past it's taken these kind of awful disasters to galvanize people. Why aren't they jumping on it? Well, I honestly don't know. I mean, I think that on the one hand, you could argue, well, this is kind of a loser for him. I mean, he, you know, Obama just came out for opening up big tracts of offshore leases. Yeah, that was just a few weeks ago, right? That was just a couple weeks ago, right? And the bottom line is he, you know, that was sort of widely interpreted as as a sort of a stop this notion of, you know, the old tired politics of the right and the left. We're going to move forward. We're going to lease all this land for offshore drilling, and we're then hopefully also going to have, you know, some kind of a comprehensive energy plan. But many people pointed out, and I certainly agree with this, like, why do that before you have a comprehensive energy plan? Use that as, a you know, part of your bargaining strategy. Yeah. How, how, how does this oil spill complicate the bargaining that's going on over energy legislation in the Senate? I, you, you, one would think that it might help it along and add a sense of urgency to it, but it seems not to be happening. Well, the energy bill came pre-screwed up in so many ways. I mean, we don't have a Senate energy bill yet. People have been talking and talking and talking for months and months and months that John Kerry and Joe Lieberman, whose name seems to keep popping up here, right. and Lindsey Graham, the only Republican who seems willing to sort of cross the aisle on this issue, interestingly enough, are going to unveil this bill, and people have seen multiple drafts of it, and there have been all these closed-door meetings, and so a lot of it is leaked out, and people have a you know pretty good sense of what's supposedly going to be in it. I think now the estimated... You know, it was supposed to be unveiled around Earth Day. It wasn't. Now I think we're hearing that we're going to see it next week. I don't really know, you know, what the exact timing is at this point. Yeah. But many people have said, and I suppose it makes sense, that if one of your bargaining chips to try to get some Republican support is offshore drilling, you have Democrats now saying offshore drilling is in it. I'm out of the bill. <laughs> so, uh, like, for example, uh, Frank Lautenberg from New Jersey. So coastal states... Senators are now saying, I, I can't support that. So it's not at all clear whether you could get a bill with it or without it. To ask a sort of a naive question about the BP spill here, how foreseeable is it that there are going to be such spills? Is this just sort of the inevitable cost of this kind of energy policy? 
Well, I don't want to say that spills are inevitable, but I think really what this shows is we are going after, you know, dirtier and dirtier sources of oil. That That is just a fact. We have used up, you know, all of the oil that was really sort of easy to get to and you just, you know, shoved a pipe in the ground in Texas or whatever and, and it started gushing out. So we, we've used that up. So that's why we are, you know, way offshore in the Gulf. Al Gore has this line, you know, a junkie will find a vein, you know, in his toes. We are so addicted to oil that we are willing to do all sorts of things. And I think that anyone who is in this area would say, obviously, very deep water drilling is far riskier uh, than other sorts of drilling because, you know, it's very hard to get down at 20,000 feet, and then it's very hard to control what goes on down there. And this, this has shown that that's the case. And how great will be the damage from this thing? Can one predict at this point? Well, estimates seem to range from the bad to the, you know, catastrophic. That seems to be the range we're in. And one of the things that I think that this has prompted people to do is go back, um, well, I should say prompted me <laughs> to do, I don't know, people in general, look at some of the reports, um, the long-term reports. We now, unfortunately, have a, you know, a laboratory for, for studying this sort of thing because of the Exxon Valdez. There were tons and tons of studies uh, done after that still. And what they show is that a couple things. First of all, that the oil tends to linger a lot longer than people thought that it gets into these sort of eddies and pools and, and coastal um, areas. It gets partially buried, and it doesn't break down um, so that it's still around the Prince William Sound, for example, and also that it has these what are called sublethal effects so that, you know, you're not necessarily, it's not even long after the acute effects, so, you know, the seabirds aren't, you know, dropping dead. You're getting these even very, very, very low concentration um, exposure to things like fish larvae and fish eggs and, and larvae and these tiny, tiny creatures, you know, that are uh, crucial to the marine food web, that they suffer very severe effects even from very low concentrations. So I think that, you know, the prognosis is really doesn't look good. to see there is a disaster courtesy bp as companies go we're not all that bad these things just happen when profits are had never you mind we'll fix this right quick even though they're the ones where blame should now stick bp's on the case with top hat and tall tails we've got rovers and tubes and if all that should fail we'll plug it with golf balls dead cats and old cars we'll even plug it with lobbyists from our company bar see we're not to blame we were given a pass it's the government's fault the gulf smells like gas 
But how could we know it'd end on your shore? Don't blame us. You should have warned us before. How careless and thoughtless and reckless times, too, to let us do what we did. We ought to sue you. George Will obviously had it out for me and doesn't like me. That's okay. That's not mutual. I've been a fan of George Will at reading. I'm just a sucker for good writing. He knows how to write. He's an excellent pro stylist. Would you agree, Mr. Yeah. Excellent Pro Stylist? Um, yeah, me? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes a guy can be full of shit, but he writes well. Yeah. And, you know, he got me on something technical. I said Brazil got off the oil. And we could, too. We were talking about the oil spill. And, yes, Brazil did not exactly get off the oil. But after the 70s, the spirit of what I said was mm -hmm. correct. Uh, after the 70s oil crisis, they tried a lot harder than we do. And, like, half their cars now run on, on synth fuel, ethanol. Okay. What I was remembering was there was an ad out here in, in 2006 uh, for Prop 87, which was for us to get off oil. And Bill Clinton did the ad. And Bill Clinton said in the ad, imagine if we can stop being dependent on farm Foreign oil. Brazil did it. If Brazil can do it, so can California. Now, I'm sure the conservatives are saying, well, yeah, there's one mushy-headed liberal listening to another mushy-headed liberal and getting your facts wrong. Well, okay, so we didn't get it exactly right. But you know what? The bigger question is, why haven't we actually gotten off the oil? And part of the reason is because of global warming deniers like George Will. And he knows better... He knows better, and he uses facts or parts of facts in a way more erroneous than I did. In one of his columns, he said, according to the University of Illinois Arctic Climate Research Center, global sea levels now equal those of 1979. Well, there is no Arctic Climate Research Center at the University of Illinois, but there are climate scientists, and they said, we don't know where Mr. Will is getting his information. Our data shows that in February 79, global sea ice was 16.79 million square kilometers, and in 2009, it was 15.45, a decrease in sea ice, the area the size of Texas, California, Oklahoma combined. You're not a global warming denier, are you? Is this patriotism? Um, I, I'm a On Mr. Will's part? I, I'm I, no, George Will works very hard, and he has strong views about it, and they're well backed well, up. Well, these aren't views. But, these are misshapen uh, facts. Uh, I think what has happened and what, what has provoked... I think, I think what, has provoked, what has provoked a lot of the digging in on the conservative side is that, um, that this case has been made with so much overstatement. And Al, Al Gore here, I think, has done his cause a great disservice by his tendency to exaggerate, to come, come up with the most um, extreme statement of the facts. Uh, and I think that people react to that with stubbornness. They know they are being sold something. And it just it never quite add, adds up to what the most extreme advocates would want. It, it, so if, if you want to... It's a little... It's such an important... 
important issue. It is to get all. Oh no, you didn't about. No, no, it, it's no, that's right. Sorry, you were complaining about this with Rush Limbaugh. The more important the issue, the more important it is for everyone to speak precisely and to be very aware of what they don't know and what is uncertain, especially with the enormous cost of doing something about this issue. You know, this, I, uh, David, it sounds to me like the creationist attack on Darwinism. You know, I mean, yet. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yes. There are there are flaws in evolution theory. There are holes in it, but there's 99% of it that's pretty solid. In the same way, there are flaws. And it's in, not in, adapt in, uh, among no, science thinkers. You know, scientists call it a theory because they are very scrupulous about not calling something okay. proven until it's proven. The attack is much less the, scrupulous. The, no one is asking. No, no one is asking in the name of Darwinism mm. for taxpayers and consumers to spend trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, if they did, then the, whatever errors there are in the theory would become very, very important. Whatever areas of uncertainty there are in the theory would become very important. The cost, the, the cost of dealing with global warming in certain ways trillions? at a certain times. Are time. you asking anybody to, uh, to spend trillions, and wouldn't it actually help our economy? It's, no, it's, it's a cost. And that, that, well, that's a perfect example of what I mean, that the attempt to recategorize something, which is indisputably a cost, into a benefit, that's an example of the kind of overstatement. Well, other we'll countries are benefit. Other countries are benefit. They are spending, it's, look, the cost, the cost of electricity from non-coal sources is much, much greater than the cost of electricity from coal. And that's just a fact. That's a cost. We're having this conversation in the week of one of the greatest ecological calamities that's been unleashed on this country because of oil. And we're saying, okay, but still, it's still cheaper, so the hell with Florida. Right? I mean, no. about it in the 70s. And the fact of the matter is, given right. what has happened in the Gulf of Mexico today, we're not going to do anything about it again. And we're going to be having this conversation time and time again about why we didn't do anything about it while our dependence on foreign oil grows every single day. What a beautiful place I have found in this place that is circling all around the sun. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. People, I am just sick about this ongoing effort to shut off that oil geyser in the Gulf. The much-hyped four-story steel hood which workers tried to install over the leak this weekend was not a success. But BP is choosing to see this dark cloud's oily rainbow lining. Well, I wouldn't say it's failed yet. Um, what I would say is what we attempted to do last night didn't work. Okay, it hasn't failed. It has not failed. Just like I wouldn't say oil has spilled, it just didn't stay in the rig. <laughs> now, they could try the nuclear option, literally. 
The Russians have suggested a solution they've used five times, which is to cap the oil leak by detonating an underground nuclear warhead. Of course, the only downside of that plan is that it might unleash a mutant crab army onto the streets of New Orleans. And you do not want giant pincers around that many exposed nipples. No. No. <laughs> that crab had quite a few beads. Did you see how many? This guy was having much more fun than I've ever had. Now, no. Creative thinking is what America does best. As Michael Byrd, a manager at the Houston Spill headquarters, said of this looming ecological catastrophe, it's been a lot of fun doing this work. That's the spirit. Some see the glass as half empty. He sees the glass as half full of crude oil and dead fish. But there are plenty of options thanks to the recent spill of oil spill solutions. Now there's another unexpected material that's helping the cause. Hey, Walton County Emergency Management says it'll spray hay into the Gulf. Now the hay will stick to the oil and make it easier to remove. Hair from humans and even from dogs has scales on it which can trap oil but not water and hair stuffed into pantyhose creates a protective boom. There's another, and it involves llamas. Measures in North Texas say the animal's thick, furry coats are great for absorbing oil. Whoops. Okay, those are a little crazy. Uh, let's get serious for a minute here and check in with what the pros have planned. The Coast Guard has an idea as well to stuff shredded tires and golf balls into the gusher to try to plug it. Oh. So no one knows what the f*** they're doing. It's playtime in the world of imagination. Well, folks, I want in. So British Petroleum, I am happy to present Stephen Colbert's Oil Containment Solution Randomizer. Isn't it beautiful? Just show me. Is that good? You like that right there? That's beautiful. Oh, here we go. Here we go. There, here's, here's my baby right there. There it is. Okay. It has three categories. Um, how the plug is prepared out here, uh, what the plug is in the middle, and how it's delivered to the spewing wellhead on the ocean floor. So let's give it a whirl. All right. Our first solution is we will use breaded juggaloos delivered by trained dolphins. Even closer, I think. Even closer, right? All right, let's go again. Woo! Next up. Next up, it will be ultra-concentrated packing peanuts delivered by monkey submarine. We'll do another? All right. They love the randomizer. Round and round she goes. How you solve the problem, nobody knows. All right. It will be, it will be bundled used futons delivered by, let's say, uh, the hot chick from Mythbusters. And BP, these are all free. And if none of those work, and it takes you 90 days to drill a relief well, well, I'm sure the people of the Gulf Coast will have all sorts of ideas of what you should shove in your hole.
The last two nights of this show, we broadcast from Louisiana, from New Orleans on the banks of the Mississippi, and from Venice in Plaquemines Parish, two hours south of New Orleans, at the place where water and land get confused, where the mouth of the Mississippi and the marshes and the Gulf hang out and negotiate and mix as the federal government, the Coast Guard, and BP keep trying unsuccessfully to cap the well that continues to gush an estimated 5,000 barrels of oil every day into the Gulf. Weather patterns appear to have held the resulting mass of waterborne oil offshore for the most part for the moment. The people of Plaquemines Parish are taking no chances, planning locally to deploy secondary absorbent booms and openings between fingers of marsh to help keep oil out of interior wetlands and waterways. They've recruited local fishermen to try to lay down what they think will be the shore's last line of defense. Why is that so important to keep the oil offshore? Well, consider this. The spill from the Exxon Valdez that came ashore in Prince William Sound in Alaska is still not over. That spill came ashore 21 years ago. That spill of over 11 million gallons affected 1,200 miles of Alaska coastline. It killed more than 35,000 birds, 1,000 sea otters, 250 bald eagles, 22 killer whales, billions of salmon and herring eggs. And that accounting of the carnage does not include the carcasses that sank to the seabed. Today, researchers have found that oil from the Exxon Valdez spill 21 years ago is still now being ingested by Alaskan wildlife, like sea otters and ducks. They've tested beaches where oil is still in the sand. According to the Associated Press, this week, oil a few inches below the surface remained. These are current pictures. Students on field trips to islands in Prince William Sound that were devastated by the spill often uncover rocks soiled in oil with little effort. Again, the spill happened in 1989. That's the environmental impact still resonating 21 years later. Now consider the economic impact. Like BP today, Exxon said it would compensate Alaska fishermen and landowners devastated by the Valdez spill. The total package was going to be $2.5 billion. The Supreme Court cut that number by 80%, down to just over $500 million many years later in 2008, while people were still waiting for that promised money. A good proportion of the people whose lives and livelihoods were ruined by Exxon's disaster died before they saw even a pittance in compensation. Exxon, of course, went on in 2005 and 2008 to set records for the all-time highest quarterly profits ever earned by any American company ever in the whole history of this country. While the company paid fishermen who lost their careers because of Exxon pennies on the dollar, if anything, 20 years later. And while sand in Alaska still weeps Exxon oil today, more than 20 years after Exxon spilled it there. Shareholders are doing great, though. Good for them. Looking back at the Valdez spill, looking warily at the future of the Deepwater Horizons disaster, what seems clear is that landfall by a giant oil slick on environmentally sensitive shorelines is the end. I mean, recovery is a euphemism once the land is coated in sticky, toxic, undegrading petro sludge. If and when it hits land, there will be efforts to clean the shore. But even the worst apologists for this disaster admit that once that delicate, fecund land has been sludged, there's not much to say about the future of that land in any of our lifetimes. I had the privilege this week to be in Louisiana covering the story. I want to thank MSNBC, actually, for paying to send me and a crew down there. You guys did not have to do that. Thanks, you guys, upstairs. But I want to leave you with this one observation. I, I talked to a ton of people in Louisiana, all with different connections to the disaster in the Gulf. And the answer to almost every question I asked anyone was the same. The answer, no matter what I asked, was we got to cap that well. 
I'd ask, do we know how to do that? And the answer would be, we got to cap that well. I'd ask, how do we deal with the worst case scenario here? The answer would be, we got to cap that well. I'd ask, what is the worst case scenario here? And the answer would be, long pause, we got to cap that well. Nobody seems to believe we can cap that well anytime soon. Everybody says we must cap that well. No one is willing to speculate what happens if we don't, if we don't cap that well. If past is prologue, the only answer, the only acceptable answer is indeed to cap that well and to never, 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 never let this happen again. Thanks for listening, everyone. I have so much to get to. But first, I just need to borrow a quick cue from the good senator. And now for today's boring correction. In the recent weeks and months, you've almost certainly heard me include a spot in the show, including this bit of audio. Now, if everyone within the sound of my voice sent in just 25 cents a month, that would be enough. But in reality, we all know that's not going to happen. So just know that when you sign up for a membership at just five bucks a month, you're actually supporting the show for yourself and 20 other people who maybe can't afford to pay. And so it was that that little bit of mathematical illogic was corrected by one particularly plucky listener, Rebecca Cabot, who wrote in to say that if you pay $5 a month for a membership and you really only need 25 cents per month from each person listening, then you are actually supporting yourself and 19 other people, not 20 as you say in the podcast, because you are paying for yourself, so you're one of the 20. That entirely valid point was compounded further when Rebecca wrote in again to take into consideration the realities of the transactional fees associated with the donations. After deducting the cost of the transactional fees, Rebecca concluded that instead of supporting yourself and 19 other people, a member would actually only support oneself and 17.2 other people when you account for PayPal fees at a rate of 25 cents per person per month. This mathematical house of cards was sent crumbling even further when listener Christine Heaton chimed in to say that since PayPal fees are based on a percentage of the transaction amount plus 30 cents, if these 18.2 people actually all did separately pay their 25 cents per month, Best of the Left would actually lose money on every transaction. Looks like the fee would round up to 31 cents per transaction, so these 18.2 do-gooders would actually end up costing $5.64 in fees, and leaving Best of the Left with a net loss of $1.09. Having had the logic of my promotional spot now ground thoroughly into a fine paste, I began having visions of asking many thousands of listeners to send in donations of single quarters by postal mail to avoid the PayPal fees. Of course, this begs the question of who would end up having to pay for the stamps. Not to mention dealing with the anger of my postal carrier. I'm happy to confirm now that the promotional spot has been retired and that I will do my best to never attempt to do math again. And that is today's morning correction. <laughs> and now with that out of the way, I can finally move on with a clear conscience and thank a couple of members before moving on to other news. Going way back in time for these two, William B. signed up for his uh, monthly membership back on September 8th of 2009. Huge thanks uh, to William for sticking with the show for all this time. And then staying back there in late 2009, I feel like there's been some injustice done. I don't know how I haven't uh, thanked Jeffrey L. yet, who signed up back on October 5th of 2009 and signed up for a full year in advance, uh, going you know above and beyond the regular membership level. 
and I really thought I had thanked all the people who had done that. So huge thanks to Jeffrey and William and every single member who signed up. All of you together is what makes the show possible. Moving on to some rapid fire news now. There's a protest that's going to be happening outside the Treasury Department that's being spearheaded by the Young Turks. It's happening June 7th at noon at the Treasury Department. June 7th at noon at the Treasury Department. June 7th at noon at the Treasury Department. I'll be there. The Young Turks will be there. Fans, progressives, people from the America's Future Now conference, I'm sure we'll get out there and we'll make a big ruckus. If you can't make it out there but you want your voice to be heard, friends from boldprogressives.org have joined the fight and set up goldmangiveitback.com. Of course, this protest is in protest of Goldman Sachs being uh, given essentially $13 billion of taxpayer money that they say they didn't really need. So to sign the petition, go to goldmangiveitback.com. Secondly, I want to mention that there are tentative plans, let me repeat, tentative plans for there to be a listener meetup in Washington, D.C. during the conference June 7th, 8th, or 9th. I wish I had something more solid to tell you. I'm still working out details, logistics, and so forth. So when and if plans get made, I absolutely will be talking about it on the show, posting it on Facebook and Twitter. And if you are interested in being involved, you can send me you know, an email, a tweet, a Facebook message, anything like that, however you want to be in contact, and I will get in touch with people directly also to let them know what's going on. Thirdly, the Netroots Nation scholarship that I had applied for and asked you to vote for is in the bag. Thanks entirely to you guys. Thanks so much for all the votes that came in. We we broke my goal of 600. We got 650 votes before I cut off the voting, and we ended up in, uh, in first place in, in the voting rolls, which means uh, an automatic acceptance into the scholarship program. I got the call on Friday afternoon confirming that, that was the case. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is a huge deal that's uh, is going to make a big difference in my trip to Netroots Nation. Now, the last thing I want to talk about tonight is a, an idea I had that I thought was pretty interesting that BP made me think of with their giant oil spill. And it's that no one in the world is really an absolute expert on anything. Everyone and and all groups of people are really learning as they go, no matter what they're doing. And so if it's, you know, drilling an oil well, if it's, you know, constructing a building, anything like that, there's not actually, like, I think people who don't do these things, there's this sense of like, yeah, the people who don't do those things, they know what they're doing. There's a step-by-step process. You follow step one through 100,000 and everything gets done and then the building is built or the well is drilled. And if something goes wrong, then there's a step-by-step guide of how to fix that and, and so forth. And it's really just not the way the world works. You know, people are, are kind of ad-libbing all the time. I think in a general sense, scientists would probably agree with me. You know, I've, I've heard lots of scientists who are considered the experts in their fields who say, you know, in order to keep up and be a so-called expert, they have to continually be learning. Otherwise, they fall behind. So stepping away from politics or science or anything like that and just talking about people's lives in general, I want to give you my thoughts on that, which is that, you know, to to get the best idea of an expert opinion is to diversify where you're getting your information from. It's just like investing. You want to get information from as many different places as you possibly can and then think really critically about all of those things that you hear and then do the best for yourself to come up with an opinion that makes the most sense to you. And there's, there's this great test that, that people run 
to uh, test this idea of kind of collective wisdom. And you you present a, a group of people with something that they couldn't possibly know about, like a jar full of jelly beans, and ask everyone how many jelly beans are in the jar. They can't possibly know. And when you ask everyone, nobody comes anywhere close to being correct. But if you take all of their answers and you get the average, almost always you will find that the collective wisdom of the group gets really, really close to the correct answer. And I even have a personal story about this back from uh, my old job, which is even more fun because some people who I used to work with uh, listen to this show, so they're hearing this story for the first time. Maybe they'll remember. We ran a fundraiser every year where uh, you know everyone on staff and, and lots and lots of volunteers would jump in to icy cold water in January to raise money. And a couple of years ago, the guy on staff who was uh, you know spearheading that fundraising effort, he came into the staff meeting with an envelope full of checks, and he was excited about how much money we had raised by checks. And so we played a fun game where he uh, asked everyone to guess how much money we had made, and then the person who guessed closest would win like a free lunch. And so he passed the envelope around to everyone, and everyone wrote their guess on the envelope. And it just so happened that I was the last one to get the envelope and make my guess. And so all I did with this knowledge of collective wisdom in the back of my head is I looked at everybody else's answer. I found the average and made that my guess. Lo and behold, of course, I won the free lunch. Obviously, I'm not saying that I'm the expert on the best way to gather knowledge or anything. Seek other opinions elsewhere, of course. But these things I'm pretty sure about, you know, diversify where you get your information from, harness the power of collective wisdom. And then finally, I'll leave you with, with this is the only thing I'm saying today that I'm absolutely positive about. It's a two-step process to always being right. The first step is just first of all, be right. Just work at it, try your best, and be right as often as you possibly can. Step two is whenever you find yourself in a situation where you're not right, change your mind. So that's going to be it for today. Support the show by telling everyone you know about it. Spread the word. Stay connected to the show between episodes by joining up on Facebook and Twitter. To get details about the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, check out the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and black.